Hear the word of God from Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 through 37. This reading comes from the Common English Bible. You can find this reading on page 642 in the Pew Bible. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant with me even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. No, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my instructions within them and engrave them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will no longer need to teach each other to say, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sins. The Lord proclaims, The one who established the sun to light up the day and ordered the moon and stars to light up the night, who stirs up the sea into crashing waves, whose name is the Lord of heavenly forces. If the created order should vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, only then would Israel's descendants ever stop being a nation before me. The Lord proclaims, If the heavens above could be measured and the foundation of the earth below could be fathomed, only then would I reject Israel's descendants for what they have done, declares the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The Reverend O. Dean Martin was a longtime preacher in the Florida Conference and for many years served as the pastor of Trinity United Methodist Church in Gainesville. Our dear friend Jim Harnish once wrote in one of his books that Reverend Martin had a great knack for crafting the perfect sermon title. He was so good at it, Jim said, that you could hear a whole sermon's worth of material just in the sermon title alone. Reverend Martin had titles such as, You Shouldn't Run a Race with Your Foot in a Bucket. It's true. Or, Sitting at the Table with Your Elbow in Apple Pie. One of my favorite sermon titles from him, however, is this, Why Windshields Are Bigger Than Rearview Mirrors. It's good, huh? I could never come up with a title like that. But you know what that's about, right? You should always face forward in life. Don't just get stuck in the past. You should always drive forward and keep on going and never quit. And I think to myself, if only Jeremiah had heard that sermon. Because let's just face it, after three weeks of a worship series on Jeremiah that we've called Hope, we're beginning to wonder if Jeremiah knows what it's like to look in the windshield rather than in the rearview mirror. For three straight weeks, through 52 long chapters of Jeremiah's book, we've heard such harsh words, not comforting words. Critical words, not hopeful words. Hard words, like how all of us are guilty of injustice, which is failure to love others, or idolatry, which is failure to love God. 
Two weeks ago, there were hard words about lamentation and weeping, and Sally did a wonderful job two weeks ago showing us how Jeremiah gives us permission to name our suffering, and so many of you did. You came forward at the end of that sermon writing on little cards what you were lamenting over, what you were weeping over, and you placed it there in our vessel of grief. And then just last week, Jeremiah calls us to repentance, to full obedience and surrender to the way and will of God. These are hard words. What in the world in a series called Hope, we begin to wonder to ourselves, when is the hope going to start, Jeremiah? When are you going to let us start looking in the windshield? Well, finally, we get there today. Finally, Jeremiah points us to hope. And by the end of this morning, you will be invited to claim that hope today. It's found right there, right in the Scripture lesson that Gray just read for us, right here in the middle of these 52 chapters is this very short section of four chapters. That's all it is, just four, chapters 30 to 34. But in it, there's this bright, glimmering, unmistakable shimmer of hope. And Jeremiah's first words to the people are this. God has a message for you. God says, I will make a new covenant with you. It will not be like the covenant of old, which was written on stone. It will be a, a covenant that is engraved in your hearts. And God says to the people, I will forgive you. I will wipe your slate clean. And I will someday bring you back home. And you'll be able to rebuild your lives. And there will be brighter days ahead for you. And we want to ask Jeremiah the question at this point, where was this for the other 52 chapters? All of the other chapters were so much more indicting and so much more challenging. Where in the world was this message of hope the rest of the time, Jeremiah? Why was it so hard to get here after three weeks of such harsh words? And I think the answer is because Jeremiah knows the difference between hope and optimism. Optimism is just a state of mind. Optimism is just positive thinking. Optimism ignores the struggle, tries to avoid the struggle and just focus on the positive. But that's not hope. For Jeremiah, hope only comes after and in the middle of struggle, not despite the struggle. Only after you engage the struggle head on, after you wrestle with it and struggle with it and find your character forged with a new kind of tenacious relentlessness, that's where hope can come from. It's what the great theologian and poet and farmer Wendell Berry once called difficult hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not positive thinking. It's not looking for a quick fix to get out of your mess. It is claiming hope only after you have fully engaged the hopelessness. Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said, I have never considered myself to be an optimist. I am a prisoner of hope. When Nelson Mandela 
was ending his long 27-year prison sentence in South Africa. Toward the end of his time there in prison, he was visited by his daughter, who was holding in her hands Nelson Mandela's brand-new granddaughter, so new that she didn't even have a name. And the way Mandela describes that moment in a book of, of when he got to hold that granddaughter for the first time, he said, I took her vulnerable and soft body into my hard, calloused hands. It's hope meeting hopelessness. And he described that moment as being filled with overwhelming hope. So at that moment, he decided to name his new granddaughter Zaziwe, the African word for hope. And he would later write, why did I name her that? Because during all my years in prison, hope never left me. Jeremiah believed that you could only claim hope after you've gone through the struggle, after you've gone through the indictment, after you've gone through the lamentation and the weeping, only after you have fully surrendered and repented and decided to offer your full obedience to the way and will of God. That is when hope can be claimed, and that's why, after three weeks of going through these hard passages, we are finally ready to end this series on Jeremiah with an unmistakable word of hope. And that's why with all of the words that Jeremiah ever said, all the stories that he told, all the performance acts that he offered to the community, there is one story in the entire book that in my mind stands high above anything else that he said or did. And it's in Jeremiah chapter 32. In Jeremiah 32, he is watching in horror as this beautiful city of Jerusalem and the entire Israelite kingdom is crashing down all around him. The Babylonians had come in and begun their conquest. The grand and beautiful temple was being reduced down to rubble. The high and majestic walls were being raised to the ground. And one by one, every Israelite person was suffering by being captured and eventually exiled by the Babylonians thousands of miles away. And right there in the middle of all of this heartache and suffering, it is then that God finally decides to tell Jeremiah to tell the people to claim hope. And God tells Jeremiah to do so in the most ridiculous, most irrational, most audacious way. In Jeremiah 32, God tells Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I would like for you to make a real estate transaction. You see that piece of land over there? That one with all of the rubble from the blown out buildings and the embers from the burnt down farms? That, that piece of land. I'd like for you to buy it. Not because the housing market is cheap right now, because it is. Not because I, I want it to be a fixer-upper, but because I want you to make a, a bold and undeniable claim of hope that will be visible for all of the Israelite people right in the midst of their suffering. I want you to buy that land as a way of telling the Israelites 
that I, the Lord their God, are going to find a way, I will find a way for them someday to come home. And this land will one day be theirs again. This was not optimism. This was not mere wishful thinking. It was not just positive thinking. It was not just a quick fix to get through the struggle. This was Jeremiah, deeply mired in the hardship of life, called by God to claim hope with something that was tactile, physical, visible, and unmistakable, to share with all of the people the hope that God would someday be faithful to all of these promises that God would deliver them. And that is what God is calling you to claim today. That kind of hope, to do something tactile, physical, visible, to claim the hope. You know, I guess one of the reasons this story is so meaningful to me is because I have seen it work in my life. For many years, I thought I knew the book of Jeremiah. I had read much of it in my earlier years. I had studied it in seminary. I had written a Bible study on it as part of my application to ordination. I'd preached on it many, many times. But somehow, each of my readings through Jeremiah somehow overlooked the power of this one story of God telling Jeremiah to buy this field. And it wasn't until I took disciple Bible study in this church about 15 years ago that I really took notice of what it meant for Jeremiah to buy that field as a visible claim of hope in God. And when I heard that story, that story stuck with me ever since. But it didn't really have deep impact in my life until 2014, just a few years ago. You know, I haven't spoken much publicly about the personal journey behind the scenes of what it took to get me and my two girls to come back here to Tampa for me to be the senior pastor of this church two years ago. There, there are many other more appropriate settings to go into whatever detail folks want to know in a more private setting, but for now, I can just share with you, it was a period of deep and profound struggle for me, for my family, for my career, a struggle unlike anything I had ever gone through in my life. For several months in 2014, as the church appointment process and the legal process were underway, I came to a point where I realized that I didn't know what my future was going to be or what the future of my family would be. I didn't know if I would get to stay in Iowa. And if I did, I didn't know how long I would be there to serve a town that I had grown to love and love to this day, to minister to Iowan people there in that small town that I still cherish to this day, or whether I'd get to come home, which was really where my heart had turned, to get to come home to the Tampa Bay area, to be near my, my parents and my brothers and their families in St. Petersburg, to, 
to get to come back to this church that had formed me in my tender years of ministry to, to get to back to be with you all, people that I love. I was not capable of optimism during that time. I was not capable of mere positive thinking. That period of my life and many years leading up to it had been a time of sheer emotional and spiritual draining. I had gone through every one of these three weeks in Jeremiah. I had gone through the lamentation. I had gone through the weeping. I had gone through the repentance and came to a place of utter surrender and obedience to God, knowing that whatever happened, my future and the future of my family and these churches was ultimately beyond my ability to craft. And it was then, in 2014, sitting in my house in Cherokee, Iowa, that my mind drifted back to that disciple Bible study class, and I thought about that story, that story in Jeremiah where God told Jeremiah, it's okay, even though you see hardship in your life right now, it's okay, even just for this moment. Go ahead, Jeremiah, buy that field. It might seem utterly ridiculous to do that, but go ahead and claim that hope. And it was in that moment that I decided, all right, God has called me to buy a field, a tactile, physical, visible way of naming that which I was hoping for, for God to provide. So it was in that moment that I allowed myself for the first time in years I allowed myself to imagine and be creative and, and think just for a moment what it would be like to hear the news that I'd get to come home. And then I wondered what it would be like for you all to hear the news that I was able to come home. And then I allowed myself to think about how that announcement would be made here in the sanctuary. And I thought, wouldn't it be great wouldn't it be great if I filmed a little video greeting for you all to see, to let you all know that I was coming back? And it was there that I sensed God saying to me, buy a field. I wanted in that video to pay tribute to our dear friend Jim Harnish. And so the idea came for me to buy a field, not a literal one, I mean this is South Tampa after all. but a field in the form of a bow tie. <laughs> Tribute to Jim Harnish, as many of you know, made bow ties very fashionable during his ministry here. And so I, uh, I decided to order one. A couple days later, it arrived in the mail. As soon as it arrived in the mail, I inspected the package and quickly put the bow tie in my closet and tried not to focus on it. And there it sat for weeks, even a few months, as I awaited the news. And then in December of 2014, I got the news that the girls and I would be allowed to come back here. 
and I would get to come back to be your next senior pastor. And when I got the news, the first thing I did was I went back into my bedroom and I reached up into my closet and I pulled out the bow tie. And then I spent the next hour on YouTube trying to figure out how to tie it. (laughs) And then the following January, January 2015, right here in this sanctuary, you all watched a video that I filmed up in my church in Cherokee, Iowa. And it was a video that ended like this. And so, I guess for now, um, there's only one more thing to do. (laughs) Okay. This part I'm not so sure about. Anyway, God bless you, Hyde Park. We can't wait to see you. Don't be fooled, it took a lot longer than two seconds to put that tie on. (laughs) God gave Jeremiah permission to claim hope in a visible, physical way. And God is giving you that same permission today. Now, I don't know what that means for you. For me, it was a $15 bow tie. But it symbolized something much richer than that. And I don't know what that will be for you, but I have confidence that the Spirit will lead you to whatever way you can claim hope in your life. And as a way of prompting your imagination, as a way of getting you to think about what a visible sign of hope might mean for you, we're going to do something together here by the end of the morning. Remember, the scripture reading said that God's going to do something new. God is going to create a new covenant, not engraved in stone, but engraved on hearts, on your life, on your human heart. In other words, this hope that you can claim today is not just fixed, plastic optimism. It's not just cold, wishful thinking. This is a life-giving hope. This is a dynamic, organic, relational hope that God wants to establish deep into the essence of who you are. And the promise that God makes for you that there are brighter days ahead of you is something you could stake your very life on. That's the kind of relationship that God wants to have for you. And so this morning, we're going to invite you to claim that hope and have it engraved on this paper heart. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to write down or to draw a picture of whatever kind of hope that you feel God is calling you to claim today. And then, after the offering plate passes by your pew, we're going to invite you to come forward whenever you feel ready, during the offertory or during the closing hymn, before the end of the service, just come forward down the center aisle and go back to that vessel of tears. And as we have been doing all throughout the morning, watch God turn that vessel of tears into a symbol of hope. Hope that's been engraved in the hearts of God's people all throughout the morning and all throughout your life. Just take that post-it note heart 
and stick it right on up there on the front of that vessel of tears and let's watch God transform our hopelessness into hope. And I even invite you, I invite you before you even place it on there to take a picture of it with your smartphone camera and, and, and hold on to that image and into the beauty and glory of this moment to sustain you through whatever trials you face in your life or whatever we experience together around the world. Let's remember something. This is not vending machine theology. I think you know this enough about me by now. I've said this enough the last two years. This is not vending machine theology. This is not just about asking God and expecting God to give us what we want, going through the right motions, pressing the right buttons, and then expecting God to give us what we want. If there's anything we've learned from Jeremiah over these past three weeks, it is that you have to go through the lamentation, you have to go through the repentance, you have to surrender obedience, you have to go through the struggle, and you cannot just skip on to hope. But at the same time, you can't just be stuck in the lamentation. God doesn't want you stuck in the harshness of life. God wants to take your head and turn it toward the windshield. And today, after you've lamented and repented and surrendered your obedience to God, it is time to watch God engrave new hope on your life. And that's what we'll invite you to do. Not just on paper, but in whatever way God calls you to buy a field in your life. Let us pray together. God, we thank you that even amid struggle and hardship, we have never been alone. We might have felt alone. We might have even felt your absence and distance from us. But today, you are near, and you feel near to us. And you are calling us to do something audacious, inspired, and even irrational, to believe and to claim hope in you. We pray, God, for any struggle that anyone in this church is facing this morning, for anyone in this sanctuary or anyone watching online who is dealing with hardship of any kind, or even as we watch the hardship that we are facing as a global community in trouble spots around the world, or even as nation, citizens of this country, we claim hope today, and we dare to believe that our future is a bright one in your hands. As we put our hope into words and into images, may they turn into action, to bold risk-taking. And may we surrender to you as you bless us, that we might be a blessing to others. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. And let all God's people say, Amen.